Welcome to the Higher Learning Podcast with me, Oz Rashid. Our podcast focuses on the one thing every business leader must excel at when building a high-performance team, effective hiring. Identifying high performers that fit your team is not just an HR responsibility. It impacts every area of the business and all hiring leaders in your company. We're here to have an honest and entertaining conversation with different business leaders from a variety of industries to learn about new ways of identifying and engaging top talent in today's business environment. I'm your host, Oz Rashid. Hello, welcome to the Higher Learning Podcast. I am your host, Oz Rashid, CEO and founder here at MSH. And today I am very excited for our guest. We have Anna Tellerico, CEO with the Corporate Finance Institute. Hi, Anna. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. Your reputation precedes you. Our CFO, Landon, is a big proponent of both you and the Corporate Finance Institute. So I definitely am excited to dig in and learn a little bit more about yourself and the organization. And and one of the things that we do on this podcast is we want to demystify big titles and roles and learn a little more about the day-to-day and a little bit about the business that you work for. So let's start there. You're CEO with CFI, and it looks like you've been in that role for about six, seven months now, and you were the interim COO prior to that. I'm interested. Tell me a little bit about how you got introduced to CFI, what they do, and then what drew you to the organization. Sure. So I am also an operating partner at Arthur Ventures, and Arthur Ventures is one of our investors at CFI. So it's very much uh, we're in the family, and I do still have the role as operating partner at Arthur Ventures, although these days it's less than a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of my my time and attention. But in my role there, I often would do interim roles with our portfolio companies at the request of the leadership team. So I was working with the CFI team, and then the CEO position became vacant, and they asked me to join. Wow. So you had kind of a real understanding of what you were walking into, the good and the bad, which we all know doesn't happen with every new job. So I bet that was a big advantage you had walking in. It was definitely, and I don't know that I would have taken it otherwise. You know, I think that I never really saw myself as a CEO. And once I really understood the company and got to know the team and what the company really needed, I saw that kind of path open up for the first time. I'm a COO at heart. I catch the balls at the CEO throws and I run them down the field. And that's just always been how I you know, thought of myself. But Getting to know CFI and understanding all of the opportunities there for both our, you know, our customers and the team, I got very involved, very passionate about it. And so when I was asked to join, it was definitely a no-brainer. So there's some commonalities between your career and my career. I am a first-time CEO, although I've been in this role for a few years now myself. But I also came up through operations, right? I felt like I understood the business. I understood kind of the, the kind of key things that we were working on, which I think was a really big advantage to becoming CEO, but your role changes for sure, right? You can't be so task oriented. You do have to be more up in the, in the strategy level of the business. So I'm interested to know that transition for you. I know it's only eight months in, has it been a seamless one? Has it been not a transition at all? Give me some ideas of kind of what that's been like for you. For sure. It's a great question. Um, It has been seamless and I feel really lucky because I have a great leadership team and that's made it so much easier. But there was a big learning for me that you can't be a CEO and a COO at the same time. For the first few months, I was really found myself like doing both roles and not even realizing it. I just, you know, I'm throwing the balls and I'm catching them. (laughs) I actually, I left a big cross-functional planning meeting And I thought, something's not right. Like, what is it? Why do I feel this way? 
And it was like an aha moment. I was like, wait, I don't have that COO partner and I'm trying to do both. So, and I don't have a COO today either. So realizing that just that in itself was helpful. It wasn't that I could solve it overnight, but just knowing that was a big kind of turning point for me. And then asking my leadership team to help solve some of the things that a COO does, you know, working so cross-functionally without that, it's a challenge. So and they're really obviously stepping up and, and I'm thinking long-term, do we need a COO? I'm not really sure, but I think that was just a big mind shift as you can't do both roles at once. Sure. And listen, let's project a little bit forward. Let's say that you do bring in a COO. I would think that it's an advantage to have, you know, be a CEO who's been in that role and understands it. I wonder if somebody coming into the role would feel the same way. So I'll ask you, have you gone and worked for a CEO as a COO? And was that a good thing? Was that a bad thing? Does that just depend on the person in the situation? Yeah, I have never worked for or with a CEO that was operationally minded. I always think too that the CEO and the COO positions are so special. They're like two you know, puzzle pieces that when they fit together perfectly, it's very special. And so they complement each other. And you know, so you always want a COO that's not strong where the CEO is strong and vice versa. So I've never worked for that type of CEO. I've worked for the very, very visionary strategy, doesn't want to have anything to do with the you know, day-to-day. So I don't know what I would be looking for in a COO. It's a good question. Yeah. I want to find a little bit more about Corporate Finance Institute. So tell me a little bit about kind of the, the mission and vision of the company and what they do. How do they, how do they work with professionals in terms of kind of enhancing them from a development perspective? Our mission is developing the skills, the productivity, the knowledge of finance professionals. Finance is such a broad sector, right? There's just so many different sub-professions within finance. And so it's really to be an enduring resource and enhance the skills and knowledge and productivity of those professionals. Our core business is online training. And so skill development, we have ongoing resources to do that, your episodic resources to do that. We've got a productivity tool but we want to be an enduring resource for finance professionals through their journey. And that really starts with our training and certification product. For a company that is big on development and helping people grow in their career, have a growth mindset, so to speak, right? Those are, I bet, your customers, people who are wanting to improve and get better at what they do. Absolutely. Is that a pervasive part of your culture? Does it have to be a pervasive part of your culture and your employee base in order to offer that type of vision and, and solution for your customers? That's such a good question. It's part of our DNA. And so many of us come from non-traditional experiences or experiences where we were able to see the value of ongoing learning and development for ourselves or through non-traditional education paths even. And so it's very personal to a lot of us. And we're very we're very mission driven, honestly, right? Like what gets us up every day is that we are changing people's lives and hearing about that is so meaningful and it's so very real and it's global. It could be, you know, somebody sitting next door to you or it could be somebody in Africa or anywhere. And it's just, it's very special. And so I would say it's definitely part of our culture and something we really value. It's a great question because as I think ahead to 2023, I'm thinking about, how do I, I make it even more of a formal day-to-day part of our culture? I just read an article the other day about how if you really value learning and development for your staff, you don't limit it to just the skills that, they, that matter to their job today. 
you know, you kind of untether it from thinking about just skills I need in this role. And you encourage people to explore whatever is of interest to them personally. And I think that's the way we need to approach it and, and think less about like, how can I develop my employees in their role or to meet their goals, you know, their professional goals, more just like, what are people interested in learning about and enriching themselves with? Yeah, development for the sake of development. And I just think that's such a key way to engage your employee base. I mean, I think there's something to, if I'm being developed to be better at my role, it's almost as if I'm, I'm doing something for the company. If I'm being developed because I'm looked at as an individual that they want to grow and invest in, then maybe that has a completely different feeling. So I, I think I'm totally aligned with you on that. We've tried to do that from a learning and development perspective, not just make it about their role, but make it about you know, sometimes we've even done things that, you know, when you hire a lot of young professionals in your organization, I feel a responsibility to help them with finances and credit card interest rates and mortgages. And so we've looked at formalizing training like that because not only is it altruistic and, and we want to help them, but also if an employee is not worrying about those things and they can be more productive in what they're doing in their day to day too. So I think there's a, a nice benefit analysis there. I also think from our perspective, we consider ourselves experts in hiring. We consider ourselves expert in technology. And I feel the weight and the responsibility of having to be damn good at hiring here in our company and be really savvy yeah. with technology. Otherwise, I feel like our customers would be like, well, why would we come to you? You can't even do it for yourself. So that is something that as a CEO, I think about, and I think you're definitely thinking in the right track on that and really baking it into the organization, I think will will reap big time benefits for you and the CFI team. In terms of revenue and how you all make money, is it through a subscriber base? Is it through certifications and trainings? Help me understand that so that we can have our listeners get an idea of how the, how the business actually works. Sure. And I kind of think about it as three buckets of revenue. We have our training and certification business for individuals, and it's a subscription where they can have access to all of our training. And we have training in sort of four pillars, lots of specialties, like lots of ongoing content. So it's something that if somebody wants to learn every day for five minutes, they can, or if they want to dig into something that's going to you know, take many months, they can do that. So we've got that for individuals. They can go through the training. They can have access to the templates and the tools that are available to our subscribers. And then we have that's a very similar offering for B2B, right? Because companies, L&D, and just uh, in general, invest in the skill development of their team. So we have a B2B offering. And that's probably our fastest growth you know, opportunity, right? It's just the B2B side of things selling into large organizations and small organizations so that they can have a world-class training experience for their staff. And then we also have a productivity software. And so that is used by finance professionals. And that's something that finance professionals who use it, use it every day. So it's really kind of a part of their workflow. So we've got three very separate revenue streams. That's how I think about it. That's awesome. And I appreciate with that, the way you broke that down for us. All right. I'm going to dive into what is my passion, what is our passion, what I think our <laughs> listeners are here for. We want to learn a little bit more about your hiring, your hiring philosophy, hear a little bit about your experiences in this space. Safe to say that you've been involved in hundreds of hires throughout your career? For sure. Yeah. It's awesome. not thousands, it feels like at this point. <laughs> sure. Totally. So I guess I'd ask you first question, one sentence or less. Can you tell me a little bit about what you consider your own personal interviewing and hiring philosophy? Mm. Well, I try to find someone's innate curiosity because somebody's curiosity and how they display it in the interview process tells me a lot about how they think, what's important to them, what they value, even tells me about their experience level, their business acumen, their EQ. So if I were to say 
one thing for me is just if they're not naturally curious, how can I create ways to bring that out in them so I can see that side of them? Because curiosity to me is the most important trait in somebody that I'm hiring. I recognize, I used to say, well, I just look for it. And if they don't have it, forget it. You know, they're not for me. But now I understand that sometimes you just need to create an environment where people can bring that side of themselves out. So I'm really just looking to tap into the innate curiosity. And you probably said one sentence and I talked for three minutes on this one. No, (laughs) I love it. I love it. And, And listen, I think it's really important when you're looking for that curiosity, is it just in the questions they ask at the end of the interview? Or is it the research they do before the interview? What are the different ways that you're trying to identify curiosity? It's really their questioning. And it's the types of questions they ask, how they ask them, Do they start with a list of questions, but then it leads to natural questions, further questions that weren't on their list? You know, how unscripted can they be with that curiosity? So it's very much the questions they ask and the style and how they ask it. I'm really looking for somebody who hears something and responds and wants to know more about that and can ask a question about it versus like that transactional listener who's just listening to check the box that they ask the question. I really feel like I'm being evaluated on my questions now. I better step my game up. Um, I read something the other day that I try to bring into everything I'm doing, and it's these three qualities. It's enthusiasm, consistency, and curiosity. And I absolutely agree with you on the curiosity aspect. The people that are constantly trying to understand why or trying to figure something out and find something out, whether it be a salesperson, whether it be a marketing person, whether it be a technologist, whether it be a finance person, I totally agree with you. I just think that's such a, a key trait. So I love that. And that's something I'm I'm definitely going to think more about as I go into future interviews. Let's talk about some memorable interviews you've had, maybe ones that you've been interviewing somebody, good or bad. I ask you that question. Does anything immediately come to mind? Yeah. As an interviewer, one of my first interviews when I graduated college before work from home, I went into an office, a regular looking office. I sat down across from the interviewer, across the desk, thought I was just having a normal interview. And I start to see some things moving around in the corner of my eyes. And I just like to the point that it got distracting. So finally, I looked away from the interviewer and looked over and there were bunnies, bunny rabbits running all over this person's office. And I think I had been so nervous coming into the interview that I hadn't noticed. I just like walked in and sat down and, but they were everywhere and they were running loose and there was food, you know, bunny food on the floor and everything else that goes along with bunnies. And yeah, I could, it was very hard to maintain my composure. Um, she didn't, you know, she was normal for her at that moment, decided I didn't think it was for me. I don't know why, but in a moment, I was just like, this is not for me. And so that was as an interviewee, the most memorable um, <laughs> interview I ever had. Well, I got to ask you, were you curious enough to ask why the <laughs> rabbits were there? I did at the end. I I did ask, and she said they just come to work with her every day, and she loves having them, and her they're her pets, and um, yeah. So you know, I probably in retrospect, if she had just said it before I came in, like, oh, by the way, I have bunnies in here, you know, it wouldn't have probably been weird. I think what was weird for me is like not knowing and sitting there for a few minutes until I saw them, and I think. My whole interview experience probably would have been changed if she had just told me they were going to be in there. Well, you're a better person than me because I think even if she had given me a ton of heads up on this, I still would have thought it was weird that there's bunnies running around. <laughs> and Jackie, that's, a, I think, a first in, in higher learning podcast history. Write that one down. Bunnies in the interview. Um, <laughs> are there any that maybe that somebody you were interviewing where either it was a really exceptional interview that stands out or maybe somebody brought their own bunny to the interview with you? I don't know. Is, what do you got? Probably two, a good and a bad. I mean, I would say one, a lot of my early 
role as an interviewer was staffing on sales and go-to-market roles. And in sales in particular, we're always looking for coachability. And so we have different ways to try and find that out about somebody. But I was interviewing a pretty young, green, kind of inexperienced person, and they were really flubbing parts of the interview. But I wanted to give them another chance. So I thought, well, let's see how coachable they are. So I gave them some feedback and I thought a way that was very respectful, but they didn't think so. And they went off on me. I mean, yelling, screaming, just very irrational response to my coaching. And my coaching was really intended to say like, can they receive this and respond right now and adjust and, you know, so we can have a great interview. But it was like off the rails. I'm pretty sure they stormed out. And so that was, uh, that was as an interviewer, one of the worst. Yeah. And then I would say the best interview that I've ever done to this date is one that got away. It was again, sales interviewing and I got on the phone with him and he interviewed me the whole time. I didn't even get to ask a question. And he interviewed me in such a good way that showed me that he really cared about where he was going to go next, that he had EQ, he had natural curiosity, and he had great business acumen, great experience to know the right questions to ask. And I hung up that call not having asked him a single thing and saying, I have got to hire that guy. Wow. Like That was the most amazing thing. I actually know that I offered him the job after a couple more calls. He didn't take it. He's still the one that got away. And I still seek those moments in interviews now where I want to be interviewed too. I want to know that they're professional and care about where they're going and want to dig into the details. But of course, it's the style thing, right? If they're just firing away, if you're just on the inquisition line, you know, just firing away questions, that's not a good experience. There's an art to it. And this guy, I mean, he nailed it. (laughs) That's a tough needle to thread to come in and be asking all the questions and then have the interviewer feel like, I got to hire this person after the fact. So you're right. It takes a, a certain level of savviness there. Awesome. Great answer. Do you have a favorite question that you like to ask prospective hires? I sure do. At the end of the interview process or the end of wherever my process ends, I always ask, is there anything else I should know? And I do this because it's so fascinating to see people's responses. You know, people, some people, they're surface about it. They don't think about it. Some people go really deep. And a lot of people get very vulnerable or real when I ask that. And what I mean is, I think that we come into interviews, we have to be professional, right? And with that, we forget that we also have to be authentic. And so if you've been super polished and just professional, you maybe lost some of that authenticity accidentally. So what I've found, what I've said, is there anything else I should know? That sometimes candidates will say things that are more authentic. They'll talk about the real reason that they're looking, or they'll talk about the bad breakup that caused them to move to this new state where they're interviewing. Or And you know, it's not that they lied before when you asked them, but it's like they gave a very veneer kind of omission <laughs> answer. And I've had people say, yeah, I'm a felon. I just, you know, people really can respond authentically to that question. And it brings a different kind of connection and truth to the interview, which I really appreciate. And I don't mind if somebody gives me a surface answer. It's not that, but I just get to know people more. And I find that that question often just drops the veneer a little bit. Yeah, I think that's a lot of empathy on your part too, because I think about, you know, when I've interviewed in the past, it's been a while since I interviewed, but when I've interviewed in the past, there's been times when I left an interview and I thought to myself, 
man, I really wish I would have gotten to share this part of who I am or share this win. And it just didn't come up in the line of conversation that they were asking me and the questions. And so you feel like it's a missed opportunity. And then if you don't get the job, you're thinking in your head, if I just would have had that opportunity to say that one thing, maybe it would have changed everything. So I think it's fantastic. I agree with you. I think you're going to get a lot of authenticity out of that. But I also think you're giving people a form to answer something or say something about themselves outside of the line of questioning. Because sometimes the line of questioning, especially if it's a half hour to an hour interview, can be limiting. So I like that. I really like that. This episode is brought to you by MSH. MSH is an innovative professional services and SaaS organization serving customers ranging from startups to the Fortune 100. A truly global company operating in more than 35 markets across three different continents, MSH partners with their customers to build the teams that solve their biggest and most complex business challenges. Find out more at talentmsh.com. When you miss on someone that you hired after you had a great interview experience, right? We all miss. What typically might have happened that led to that bad outcome? What did you miss? A few things. One is that I was rushing. I wasn't really listening to my gut because I can think about every real miss I've made. When I think back to the process that there were red flags or things I was ignoring because I was either super excited about the candidate or I was super rushed to fill it. So I think the misses often just come from not listening to the inner voice and rushing to fill the seat. I think the other misses, and I'm really big on this, which is finding somebody that wasn't really the ideal candidate profile and stage appropriate. I think it's really important before you ever talk to somebody about a role to get a sense of your ideal candidate or your deal breakers and to always refer back to that. And by the way, I think a lot of people are hiring, especially key positions. They don't know what their ideal candidate looks like. And that's okay too. Then talk to some people and kind of then regroup and think about what does that ideal candidate look like. But these times where I needed a builder and hired somebody who'd never built before, or you know, I needed a sales leader to really scale a sales team. And I didn't get that. Like, so I, I always think about like, what are the core things I've got to have? And I have to hold myself accountable to those because if I don't hold myself accountable to them, that's usually when there's a miss. Love that answer. Totally agree with you, by the way. I think that what I've seen in my career is the biggest miss on hires is the role that needs to be filled yesterday, right? And that's the common joke in, yeah. in every in every hiring manager make. When do you need this filled by yesterday? When you are moving <laughs> quickly because there's a gap and for whatever reason it's causing you stress or causing you issues, you're going to rationalize, right? The person in front of you, you're going to look to have somebody in the seat and invariably that usually leads to making mistakes in the hiring process. So I think you're spot on with that. And I always look back to, I can always think of the red flags that I might've missed when that happens. So good call out by you. Hiring experience for a candidate, I think is something that I think people are starting to understand is pretty dang important, whether it be because of glass door or different ways to hold hiring leaders and companies accountable. I also think it's one of the more underrated forms of marketing for a company, right? If you have a good experience with a company, whether you get the job or not, you're more likely to recommend or buy their products and services and vice versa. So I'm interested as somebody that does a lot of hiring. Do you do anything to create a unique kind of candidate experience? And why do you think that might be important beyond anything I've already said? Yeah. So before I answer that, let me tell you a couple of like just philosophical things I have about because I think the candidate experience is so important. And right now, it's definitely gotten more equal in that you know, the hiring and the hirer don't have more power than the other. I mean, I think a lot for a long time, we as 
people that were hiring somehow thought that we we were had the power and we could you know have a crappy experience and still somebody you know would be expected to take a job or something it's like that's so out of whack right like we don't hold the power the candidates do and that is the right balance of power so what's happened in the last year as crazy as it's been in the, the talent acquisition space it's the right sort of direction that it needs to, we need to be more respectful about candidates, about their time, their attention, what we're asking them to do. And we've got to change the power dynamics. So I would just say that that is really important. But I think a really great candidate experience is important. But I think a lot of crappy companies create great experiences, and that's not authentic. So Mm -hmm. what I care about more than anything is that the candidate experience is very authentic to what the company culture is like. Mm. So you can't have like, we've designed this perfect candidate experience, but that it's not a mirror of what it's going to be like after they accept, right? Because that's just dishonest. So I think more than anything is let's create a candidate experience that is contiguous for what they're going to experience after they accept. So it's a little bit of a just a personal beef of mine when, when people just, you know, it's all rainbows and puppies and then they get in the door and they're like, this is not at all what I expected and what they were like on the other side. That's awful. What a fantastic and original answer. I really love that. I agree with you. It can't be like a curated Truman show type experience where it's completely disingenuous to what it's actually like. I mean, you want to give people a realistic job preview of what to expect when they join your company. Now, hopefully that's showing up on time and being courteous and being empathetic and kind in the interview. But if that's not you, then make sure that you're being realistic about it because people are putting their lives on the line in a lot of ways. I want to be dramatic about it, but when you change a job, it's a big deal, right? Changes your compensation, commute, your relationships, your development. So it should be a big decision. And so you should do everything you can to not just put a shine on something that maybe demands a little bit more transparency and honesty. So fantastic answer. All right. And we want to learn a little bit more about you. So day in the life of your job, what's it like? Ooh, okay. Right now, a lot of meetings mm-hmm. yep. <laughs> um, and not, not very much unstructured time. I'm working my New Year's resolution. I know is going to be more unstructured time to work on the business, but um, you know, I'm eight months in, still a lot to do. And so I spent a lot of time with my team in meetings and we're remote too, which just increases the meeting time. I spent a lot of time interviewing. I mean, that's been my biggest priority since I got here was filling key roles. So, you know, probably spend in a given month, maybe just like 15, 20% of my time interviewing, depending on, you know, what I'm hiring for. So it's really important. You know, you've got to get the right people in the door and fill those key positions. And I want to be really close to it at this kind of formative stage. It's interesting. We run a pretty good like operating cadence. So what that means is I'm quarterly planning and I'm annual planning and then I'm looking at the quarterly plans again. Like it just kind of, as soon as you're done with one aspect of it, you're kind of gone to the next. So we do you know, a lot of goal setting stuff and then we're reporting on the goals and looking at the goals and then deciding on the next goals. So I would say that that's another big part of just my day and week and month is just keeping the operating system of the business going so that everybody knows what to expect. So employees know. When do we goal set and when do we have, you know, our performance reviews and how do we do this? And to, for employees to know what to expect, if you're hiring a lot of people quickly, the way we are right now at CFI, employees need to know what to expect. So you've got to have an operating cadence that's very consistent. I mean, go back to what you said earlier about consistency. They need to know what to expect and you need to be able to communicate that so they're not wondering. So 
that operating cadence is really important. I spent a lot of time kind of honing it and executing it. I love that. We talked a little bit earlier about how you had a little bit of knowledge about the company before you came in and actually were playing the CEO role. But were there surprises when you got in the seat? Were there things that maybe that you just couldn't have seen unless you were actually sitting in the cockpit like that? For sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because the first thing I did was get my arms around all the data. I think there was a lot of assumptions made that like the data was there though. So we could have just been looking at data versus making assumptions. And one of our values at CFI is data-driven and our staff just redid our values and they did a great job. It's awesome. And data-driven is a really good value, but mine's more data-informed. And so I just want to have data in front of me as I make my decisions. And so I would say this like getting my arms around all the data and data is never easy. It just, just, you know, you need great people to get access to real sources of truth and present the data in a meaningful way. So I think there's just getting my arms around some of the things that people had assumptions about was probably a big surprise. And then the other one is just before being an operating partner at Arthur Ventures, I was a COO of an online training company for cloud skills. And we had a huge community, rabid fans, and, you know, just like fans. It's hard to explain, you know, and uh, I didn't think that finance would be like that. I just thought it was going to be more buttoned up and, I think another big surprise is just the fans in finance are the same as they are in cloud technologies, which is super cool. Very different than what I thought it was going to be. So I can speak to that firsthand. Like I told you earlier, Landon, Landon's a fanatic, right? That's what that's fans short for. He's a big, big proponent of CFI and the stuff you're doing over there. So I love that. What are you working on right now that you're really excited about? What gets you up in the morning, gets you juiced? Mm. Well, we're in the throes of 2023 planning um, because it's an iterative process. It'll take us a few months. And it's really exciting because we really are in that green field part of it where we're just saying, what do the customers need? What's the most value that we can offer? The needs that they speak and the needs that they don't speak. And so it's a fun, exciting time. Right now, we're going to have lots of big plans. And over the next few months, we're going to whittle down to what can we actually execute or what will the budgets allow us to execute. So it gets a little less fun. But thinking about all the things that we can do to add value to the customer's lives is a lot of fun. And it's very exciting. And, and that's what we're doing right now. Fantastic. All right. We have a little thing we like to do on here where we we examine an old LinkedIn post and we ask you about it. So I saw this one and I was really excited to hear your answer. So Seth Goldberg, sarcasm doesn't just make you happy. It can also help you be more creative and successful. And then you said sharing this one for a special friend of my network. You know who you are. Why sarcastic people are more successful. Why are they more successful? I don't know because I didn't even read the article. Oh, man. So you have a sarcastic friend? Oh, man. You picked such a funny post. So I have a very, very sarcastic friend and definitely the most sarcastic person I know. And he's constantly trolling me on LinkedIn because he just knows me socially. He doesn't know the professional me. And he's quite professional, but not in a world that they're on LinkedIn, right? Sure. So he just thinks it's hilarious. And it's just it's just a constant thing. He also does not like Bill Murray. <laughs> doesn't like Bill Murray? I know, I know. And the picture in that article is Bill Murray. So he's the most sarcastic person I know. And the article's got a picture of Bill Murray. So I knew that when I shared it, that he would know instantly that it was him. And of course he did. But the funnier part about that is 
a lot of people in my network thought it was about them. I got so many messages like, oh my God, I love that thing you share just for me. So so a lot of people interpreted that it was for them, but it wasn't awesome. just for one person. We're, we're all the lead actor in our own movie, right? Everybody thought it was targeted at them. That is just so funny. Exactly. I'm going to throw a little bonus question at you, and this is going to be a little bit uh, of a curveball for you. Any thoughts on the term du jour, quiet quitting, or anything? I mean, you talked a little bit about engagement and you talked a little bit about employees and then how maybe they're getting a little bit more power and kind of the dynamic in terms of employers and employees. Any thoughts on quiet quitting or, or, or the great resignation or any of these uh, buzzy terms that we, we hear day to day? Yeah, well, I quiet quitting is obviously just a buzzy TikTok term that we'll, we'll be using soon. But I do think it is a way to phrase the boundary setting that many people are doing now in all stages of their career. It's not just new people to the workforce and it's not just people that are you know, nearing the end stage. It's, it's all of us, I think, that it's an interesting thing. I'm a worker, my whole family, my kids, like our joke in our family, my husband, we go on vacation and like probably we're in that beautiful place all working, just who we are. We like love it and we that's just something that we really enjoy, but not everybody's like that. And so I say that because I've not always had boundaries about work. I haven't felt the need to, but that's not the case with a lot of people. A lot of people have a lot of bleed and don't have boundaries, but they don't enjoy it. And so I think everything that's happening around boundaries at work are really important and healthy. And I hope that companies understand that it's not about people wanting to work less. It's about, you know, people needing to have boundaries between these things and not, not wanting these things to bleed over. And it's a challenge. It's hard for people to create boundaries. So I think that the fact that it's having a little cultural moment is great because it's going to make it easier for people and it's going to be more accepted. I come also from like very intense work cultures. And before joining CFI at Corporate Finance Institute, I was an operating partner at Venture and and Venture is a different pace. That was my first experience with a pace that's different than we're in a frenetic, high growth, you know, startup. And it really showed me a different way of working. And then CFI has the people that were here when I got here have great boundaries. And so it was instant that I got to see it and witness it and respect it. And so, yeah, I feel really lucky that the culture that I walked into had those boundaries. So just a long story short, you know, I don't need those boundaries. And so I have just learned, right? You've got to schedule your slacks. You've got to schedule your emails. It's nobody wants to wake up in the morning with, you know, an inbox full of things that were happening all night. And it's also just not a good look as leaders. We shouldn't be doing that. So the only thing I wish, I wish that you could schedule comments you leave in Google Docs because you can't. And Google needs to create that feature so that people don't get those notifies. But All that to say, I think it's great. And I think it's very necessary. And I think that work should not bleed into the other aspects of our lives unless we invite it to and want it to. And so we can't expect that of our staff. Well, I'm pretty sure Sundar Pichai is a listener of the podcast. So he might have just got a great idea on a feature from you there. So that's awesome. Very excited about that. I hope so. <laughs> Quiet quitting. While I don't love the buzzy nature of the term, I think it brings awareness to something that's real and that employers need to be thinking about. So I think you're spot on with that. And I think it's another great sign of your empathy that just because you're wired a certain way doesn't mean that you assume that everybody in your workforce or everybody that works with you is wired the same way. So I think that's fantastic. I'd be remiss if I didn't end with this. Is there anything about you that you'd like to tell us before we leave? 
I'm a big fan of Landon, your CFO. He's awesome. So, you know, he's just a great guy and we really enjoy his partnership and we feel really lucky that he's a fan of CFI, but it's definitely mutual. So you've got a great guy there. I've yet to meet somebody that's not a fan of Landon Kordenbach, but I am thrilled to hear that and we are lucky to have him, grateful to have him and I'm grateful he made the introduction. It's been a great conversation, Anna. Thank you so much for the time and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thank you for listening to Higher Learning with me, Oz Rashid. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode.